Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, friends. Today, we have another installment of our Best Idea series. We have one of our show's inaugural guests in the house today. He's a former Marine captain now CEO and co-founder of Alpha Architect. In today's episode, we're covering his best idea, how to launch an ETF. This is a question I get, if not every day, certainly every week. We go deep and cover the ups and downs of the asset management business and the different permutations his business went through before eventually landing on the ETF structure as the best path forward. From transparency to tax efficiency to ease of access for investors, we chat about why someone should consider launching ETF. We spend a lot of time walking through the process of all the nuts and bolts of getting a fund up and running, which is not for the faint of heart. We even walk through some case studies of some folks that have launched ETF successfully with Alpha Architects White Label Business. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Y Charts. Whether it's their monthly market wrap, top 10 visuals resource deck, or their quarterly economic summary, YCharts consistently arms advisors with the content and tools they need to turn their investment strategies into powerful discussions that truly resonate with clients. With Q1 behind us, YCharts will soon release their economic update visual deck covering topics ranging from market insights to interest rates, macroeconomic data, all packaged in a client-friendly PowerPoint deck that easily breaks down trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. See how YCharts can be your go-to resource for discussing the state of the markets, with templates and downloadable visuals, you can seamlessly incorporate into proposal reports or presentations to not only engage, but also to educate clients on their financial goals. Click on the link in the show notes to grab your copy of the visual deck and follow along when you register for YChart's Economic Update Q1 2024 webinar on May the 2nd. Don't forget, get 20% off your initial YChart's professional subscription when you start your free YChart's trial and tell them Meb sent you new customers only. Please enjoy this special Best Ideas episode with Alpha Architects, Wes Gray. Wes Gray, welcome to the show. Hey, Meb. Happy to be here again. Wes, where's Grizz? I'm looking at your home office, which, by the way, was the same office pre-coronavirus. I don't, I don't see Grizz in the background. What happened to him? Well, so to be COVID-friendly, I moved into the kitchen where Grizz is and put my office in here. And then you can't see it, but he's in the, the middle room there for everyone to see. And he hangs out with the uh, trade and execution team. I figure they're nearer to killing bear markets than me. For the podcast listeners who aren't watching this on Zoom, Grizz is a giant grizzly bear that Wes has in his office. My background is in the Flat Tops Wilderness where Wes, I mean, come on, your brother, I'm trying to give a little shout out to the Flat Tops Wilderness Guides. You have a local, you've probably been to this lake at some point. Yeah, yeah. If anyone out there listening is uh, into elk hunting or you know going on crazy adventures, happy to offer up the family discount. Just have to reach out to Meb or reach out to myself, and happy to uh, put you in touch. We'll have to do a Meb West shareholder quant wilderness excursion. Yeah. We'll get that on the schedule. <laughs> it's pretty easy to social distance out in the middle of nowhere. We did a 
three-day horse pack trip there and didn't see anybody. So wonderful. All right, Wes, we haven't had you on as a guest since you were one of the inaugural episodes and I think the first week of the show back in 2016. And the topic was, and this is in 2016, even God would get fired as an active manager and walk forward four years and probably God would have been fired. What's what's your general takeaway on how the world's uh, played out in the last four years? Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, if God had anything to do with value investing at this point, he probably was fired. You know, maybe if, if God was lucky and did some more momentum stuff or mega cap stuff, maybe he'd still be hanging in there. He, he or she, depending on what you think about these things. But yeah, definitely, uh, unfortunately, a good conversation. But the truth uh, is ringing a little bit too true at the moment for all of us out there who are kind of on the value side of things. Listeners, go back and check out that old episode. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's really insightful on not just the difficulties and challenges of being an investor that moves away from market cap, but also expectations on return. And most importantly, drawdowns. The the thesis was really, even if you had a perfect foresight, you would have got your face punched in enough that you probably would have quit anyway. At least that was my takeaway. Yeah, no, that that is the takeaway. Even if you're a long-term investor and and that study, you know, is looking out five years, even if you know the winners uh, and you do that strategy because the markets are so noisy and crazy in the short run, you could be the smartest person out there and still look like an idiot. And I, you know, I'd put a more than 1% chance that could be what happens for the next five years. Where right now, you know, if you sorted the stocks on the future five-year winners, assuming you could, I would not be surprised if five years from now, people find out that that portfolio is a bunch of these crazy, you know, underappreciated deep value stocks that have been left for dead. And it probably won't be Tesla. That's the beauty of y'all's lineup. I know we're not going to talk too much about y'all's funds, but listeners, you can check out. We're shareholders, by the way, full disclosure, Wes's suite of ETFs. They have pretty concentrated strategies that it will give you pretty extreme exposure to both value on one side of the coin and momentum. I think momentum strategies are up 20 plus percent this year or something pretty crazy, but that's the way the world's going. All right. Not the topic of what we're talking about. Yeah. This is a one of the inaugural shows in our new concept called What's Your Best Idea Right Now? We've done a few already. We had on Jeremy Schwartz talking value in Japanese stocks. So Wes, what's what's your best idea right now? So my best idea is not really related to a necessary a specific strategy per se, but my best idea is launching an ETF. And we can talk about why. But yeah, that's the bottom line. Launch an ETF and put whatever investment strategy you have in the best wrapper out there for the future. So I get this question, if not every day, certainly every week where someone will email me and say, hey, Meb, I got this great idea. I'm ready to launch an ETF. How do I go about it? And we have an old post. It's probably six, seven years old now about how to start an ETF. And then you wrote a definitive guide, which we'll put in the show note links, but figured uh, I can now point them to this podcast because this will be a masterclass in everything that goes into starting a fund, 
the drawbacks, the benefits, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I think it'd be instructive or helpful to hear a little bit about how you guys decided to start launching ETFs from the early days, what was sort of the on-ramp, and then we'll kind of get really deep into the specifics on, on how all the sausage gets made. Sure. So going back way back, like, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to win in this investment management business for a long time. Not as long as, as you have, Meb, and we've kind of grown up in this thing together at some, some level. But this business we have now is basically the fourth attempt at trying to win in the asset management business. And before that, obviously, those were bad attempts. And they were all related to kind of the traditional way of looking at it. Like, hey, uh, let's do asset management. Let's start up a hedge fund and do it black box, you know, charge high fees and try to beat the market. You know, different permutations of that. One of which, you know, I started in September 2008, which obviously terrible timing. But essentially after getting a lot of scars on my back and kind of taking a, a deep breath and assessing, well, what do people actually want? Do they really want to buy like totally opaque, really expensive things that rely on me to, you know, beat the market? Probably not. Like the world is moving the Vanguard route where people like transparency, they hate fees, they hate taxes, and they want to understand what they're buying and why. And unfortunately, but I think fortunately, you know, as an asset manager, no one wants to do that because now you have to be transparent. You got to keep your fees low. You, you, know, you got to tell people what you're doing. That's great for the client, not necessarily great for the asset manager, but we just made a hard decision probably around 2012, 13, that that's where the world was going and that's where we wanted to be. And that obviously naturally led us to the ETF structure and, and away from hedge fund structures and SMA structures and all the other options out there. So you guys have, let's see, five funds of your own and a handful of other white labels, which we'll get to. But talk to me about just generally, what's the, what's the sort of business concept opportunity and, and why starting an ETF in the first place? You know, here we are in 2020, there's thousands of funds. Um, you mentioned Vanguard is this Goliath sitting at pretty darn near 0% for half of them. Yeah. Uh, why, why should someone start an ETF in the first place? I'll just outline kind of like the high level costs and benefits, and then we, we can pull on each of those. And I can talk about like, at least what we're offering, how that might help you make that decision. But, but essentially when you look at like, well, first off, what is the downside of launching an ETF or, or frankly a mutual fund or any of these like registered fund vehicles? The most obvious one is like the high fixed cost. And it will explain how we're trying to fix that problem, but that's a problem that will frankly never go away. The other one is with ETFs, transparency is a key component of, of operating them smoothly. And obviously there are solutions out there that try to get around the whole transparency element. I'm pretty skeptical that those are actually any good, but who knows, maybe that problem will be fixed. And then the other really big challenge with ETFs uh, before people get too excited is it's really hard to know exactly who owns your ETF. So to the extent that you have people selling your product on, on your behalf, you, you want an ability to identify what they sold so you can pay them fairly. There's technologies that are making that easier, but it's not as easy as it is in, say, a mutual fund structure. 
So essentially high fixed costs, a lack or you know, high transparency and distribution transparency issues are like the main cost. So that's the sucky part, but why would you do it? What are the benefits? Well, the number one benefit that I just said is a negative is transparency. And that's just because we believe that clients and investors nowadays actually find transparency to be a good thing. So yeah, you got to spill your secret sauce, but I think it's important that people know what they're buying and why. So I see the transparency of ETFs as actually a huge benefit. The other really big one for us specifically, just because we traffic in people that hate taxes more than they like making money half the time, is tax efficiency. So I, I know, Meb, you've talked a million times about it, but, but essentially ETFs are kind of like 1031 for stocks. So if you know about 1031 in real estate, where you can kind of roll your basis. Good. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the easiest way for me to explain it because a lot of people know about 1031 in real estate. I just say, hey, it's basically the same idea in stocks. You can keep punting the basis out and you don't have to distribute out the capital gains, which is obviously a, a huge benefit for anyone who's doing strategies that turn over essentially. And then the two other big benefits is one, the market access. So if anyone's ever filled out like a 50 page subscription document for a hedge fund, as you know, it's a total pain in the ass. Whereas if you want to be a proud owner or seller of an ETF, all you do is type in a ticker, right? And you own it. There's, there is no SMA. There is no LP docs. It's done. So it's very easy to access the product. And then the final thing that we always tell folks about the benefit of the ETF is if you are an asset manager and you're running a thousand SMAs and, and all these different lines, operationally, that can be a huge pain. Whereas an ETF just centralizes everything into one product where you can manage the taxes, the trading, the whole ball of wax in one vehicle, as opposed to trying to like tax harvest and manage you know, every single account out there. So that's kind of like the high level cost and benefits of just the ETF at a high level. So we'll dig into each of those. I'll just make a couple quick comments, you know, from our experience, you know, the transparency, it's funny, it's, it's been a sort of a media darling for the past decade about launching these non-transparent ETFs. But to me, it's always been a feature of the transparency being a positive and why in the world anyone on the consumer side would ever want non-transparent, they wouldn't. It's just the high fee fund providers that want, in my opinion, an excuse to charge more. So you've seen it and I don't think it'll be a big development. That's my two cents. And second, from our own personal experience, you know, we have over 50,000 clients now and having a separate account business like almost every advisor does in the country managing the complexity of that. And, you know, it's easier when you have iRebal and TD or Schwab's or any of the various software programs, but it's still, in my opinion, a hundred times harder than running an ETF. So there's plenty of it, and we'll get more into this, but there's plenty of advisors out there that I, I don't think have ever considered the route of wrapping it into a fund versus doing it through the traditional separate accounts. But we'll, we'll dig more into that. Okay, let's talk about the process. So when I got started, I mentioned that we're, we're predate you guys. Yeah. You know, in the early days of ETFs, in the early 2000s, even in the 90s, 
you had to do a whole bunch of legal wrangling to get the exemption and permission to launch funds. And the SEC had sort of a patchwork setup where, you know, different people got different permissions at different times. And it was just sort of a mess. It cost us probably 200 grand in 14 months. We have friends that had to pay a million dollars in legal and setup fees. And now it's essentially zero or close to it. So that's the good news for the providers. The world has changed. But the SEC, finally, with the new ETF rule, has sort of leveled the playing field for everyone, which is a great thing, but also been a huge boon to the tax treatment, which I think will will eventually kneecap all the mutual funds and accelerate the changes. So talk to us about the process of launching a fund, all that goes into it, how to, to, to plan it, all the pre-launch, actual launch. All that good stuff. Walk us through. As you mentioned, it, it is like a super, there's a lot of moving pieces, but so what, what I'll do here is just like the real high level, because at a high level, it, it's frankly not that hard. And everything I'm going to mention is just ballparks, right? If, if you're going to do a triple levered, long, short, you know, drawdown zero fund that talks to Rentech every day, you know, none of this is going to apply. This is more for like, generally down the pipe, been done before ETFs, right? And so essentially what you look at is it's kind of like a four-phase approach to launch an ETF. The first one is just planning, right? And, and you re- when you do an ETF, one of the downsides we mentioned up front is there is a big fixed cost. It's not like firing up an SMA where you don't really need a lot of infrastructure up front. So, so you're going to have to invest a lot of time and money. You want to do a lot of planning. In those phases, you want to understand first off how how are we gonna you know pay the bills, and that either works through like raising VC capital, you know, being willing to float that out of your own personal capital, or maybe even talking to your own clients that are in SMAs and and pitching them on the idea of hey, you know, maybe we should launch an ETF. It's more tax efficient, and I'll even give you a part of the business. Like whatever it is, you, you somehow got to be able to finance this sucker, and then and that's just the operating capital to run it. And then the second uh, big part of the planning phase is really understanding like, what is my baseline distribution plan or how am I going to raise money? Maybe not how am I going to raise a billion dollars because who knows how people do that, but at least you got to have a plan of how do I get to five mil? How do I get to 25 mil? How do I get to 50, right? Like just focus on what's in front of your face. And so in that planning phase, you're really just figuring out like, hey, you know, how am I getting the money to fund this? Who's going to be my initial buyers? And does this product actually make sense in the marketplace, given what's already out there? And we always tell people that, I mean, that could be 10 years or that could be zero months or, or zero time, depending on how, how much you've been thinking about this, you know, daydreaming about it all day. So a- any questions or, or thoughts you got on, on just like the baseline planning phase in your experience, Rob? Yeah. I mean, I'll make a couple of just quick comments. You know, the first one is... of the time when people contact us, it's, I have this great idea for an ETF and they see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And then we walk through the actual, hey, how do you plan on get to hundred million? Do you have any assets? No. Do you have any marketing plan? No. Are you willing to subsidize this for three years? No. So what people really see is, is, hey, it's like a, you know, a free lottery ticket or something, but, but they have to walk through the actual reality of competing with Vanguard. And I'll say this real quick, and then you can continue. 
you know, we, we repeat often with there's four, four criteria for us to launch a fund personally. One, it either doesn't exist, meaning you're doing a totally new category, or we think we can do it much better or much cheaper. And cheaper is rare these days, but it still happens, particularly relative to the mutual fund and hedge fund space. Two, it has to be something that has some sort of academic or practitioner research. And you guys do a great job of this, supporting the concept uh, or the fund strategy. Three, something I would put my own money into. So much of the big providers and one of your um, coworkers, Ryan, talks a lot about this, where a lot of the assumption of the smaller providers like Alpha Architects and Cambria is people always say, well, it seems risky. You guys are small. But in reality, the big shops close dozens of funds every year. So they have more of this spaghetti mentality where I think shops like ours, it's much more of a, hey, will I put my own money into this versus what can we sell? And I think that's a very different mentality. And lastly is, does anyone actually want it? And so you touched on this. There's a couple ways to actually check that box. First, first is, do you have a big fat seed? Is someone willing to seed it? So like the good examples of like Fisher starting a couple of these funds with Barclays where they were seeding with hundreds of millions of dollars. Two would be, are you willing to incubate it and let it marinate for three years in hopes that the world just thinks you're brilliant and the performance is in line? And lastly would be, do you have some sort of cannibalization, which I think is is an area that more people should consider? Or even fourth would be, do you have a very clear marketing plan of how to get this to at a minimum 20 million, but really 50 to 100? Otherwise, they sort of get lost in the wash. All right. That, that, was, that was my very long, short input on that. No, no. Th- and this is honestly the most important phase because uh, like to your point, now that we're kind of in the business of helping other people do it, you get every every story on the planet. And I think what you mentioned there is is great wisdom. This thing better be something Vanguard iShares really can't do efficiently. And you better be willing to fund and back this thing with your own capital for a long period of time. Or at least in our situation, we don't want to do business with you. And to your point, like on our own funds, like like we're never liquidating our funds because they're built for our own money. And, and a lot of people that, that we work with and a lot of people you work with, like the whole point of the ETF wrapper is the tax deferral. And if we're iShares, like burning up 20% of our funds every year, well, you don't get the tax deferral then. So, so you really need to look at uh, like the ETF sponsor and provider and make sure that they've got the one, the culture and the capital and the capability to be around for a long time. And we always tell people, you got to look the book, you know, the front of the book is, is not everything. You got you to read the book a little bit. It, it's to like, you know, a shop like ours where, you know, our infrastructure, you know, costs, they're a lot less than, you know, even like Vanguard. So we may be able to sustain a fund or our partners may be able to sustain a fund at maybe 25 to 50 mil for a long time. Whereas, you know, power shares or I shares, like a hundred mil fund that's not really doing anything, they'll be more than happy to blow that up and move on to the next, you know, piece of this uh, spaghetti to throw against the wall. Yeah. I remember being on one of the panels with one of the big shops in the early days and someone asked that question, what's the minimum break even for an ETF? And I was like 20 million and Vanguard was like, it was in the hundreds of millions. Part of that is because they're at two basis points, but also it was because they have armies of salespeople and, and, and fixed costs. All right. So walk me through the actual 
you know, you guys are kind of the perfect team to talk about this because you have a military efficiency about it. So let's say an RIA is listening to this and he says, Meb West, you guys are right. I'm tired of dealing with these separate accounts. I'm going to take and wrap 100 million of my separate accounts, 500 million, whatever it is, and just launch an ETF and just manage that instead of dealing with all these separate accounts, tax efficiencies, yada, yada, all the other good stuff. Walk us through sort of like how the the phases go. Like, let's say they call you today or email you after this and say, all right, let's do this. Let's light this candle. What then? How long does it take? What are the costs? Let's go. Sure. Yeah. So so let's say you're doing the bring your own asset approach, which I think was coined by uh, Eric Balkunas, which would be the case of, a, of an advisor who's already got like a you know, bunch of un- underlying investors where, where they go in there and say, hey, team, we want to launch. We're doing the stretch right now. It's kind of tactical. It's engaging a lot of like tax inefficient trades. We want to do the same thing but do it in an ETF wrapper where now we can gain all this tax efficiency, operational efficiency, blah, blah, blah. And the clients get it. They're like, awesome. As, you know, and they'd have to probably negotiate to make sure they're not getting double feed and you know, it's in their best interest, what have you. But we were, we were able to very easily convince our SMA client base that the ETF was just a better idea. So they were more than willing to be the initial kind of funding for it. And most RIAs, I think, if they sit down with their clients and explain the benefits, their clients are like, well, yeah, of course we're going to do that. So you're going to do it. You got some funding. The fastest you could possibly do this, if you are ready to rock day one and you're pretty squared away, is like you walk, call us a day. Hey, I want to launch ETF. What's the soonest I could do it? I'd say realistically, probably four months, right? Maybe you could squeeze it down a little bit more than that, but that's as fast as you're going to do it. And it could extend out to years, depending on how slow you are, right? So it's just ballpark concept. And then, so what? what's in that, let's say the four month plan where you're just whooping it on? Well, the first part is in the pre-launch, right? So the, the pre-launch phase is where it's mainly a big heavy lift on the legal documentation. You have to file a registration statement where the key document there is your prospectus, right? So you got to pay the lawyers all this money to draft up, like, what is the strategy? What are all the various risks? How does it work, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of like the cornerstone element you got to do in the pre-launch phase. And in this stage, obviously you're interacting with the lawyers and they're interacting with the SEC because you need to get this registration statement approved so we can actually launch this fund. This whole phase you know, it ranges, but you can usually bang it out all in for probably like 50K, let's say. Sometimes it could be cheaper, sometimes more expensive, but just the initial structuring phase of one-off cost is around 50 grand. And I don't know, does that seem in the ballpark what what you've seen, Meb? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I think could be cheaper. It could be more expensive. It just depends on what is involved in the strategy. If you're like, hey, I'm going to do US equities, 20 stocks, I rebalance it once a year or something like like that's probably a lot easier to get out than something that's like new frontier trailblazing with totally new ideas. And by the way, I want to say this real quick as you go through this, a lot of people, you know, come to this and say, I'm, I'm debating doing this on my own versus white labeling. And let me emphasize, as you listen to Wes, what a gigantic nightmare doing this on your own is if you haven't done it two, three, five, ten times already. Because I think that for the two of us that have done it enough, 
it's sort of like old hat. But I remember the first time doing this and being like, oh, dear God, this is the most this is like dealing with a enormous oil tanker with 17 different international agencies being involved and having really no clue what to expect or what's going on. And then you spend 70% of your day like I do signing forms, dealing with compliance, chatting with lawyers, dealing with the SEC, all the just nonsense of managing a the business of running a fund versus actually just running a fund. And for a lot of people coming into this, they're doing this because of the simplicity. And so partnering with a firm to me is such a no-brainer. Anyway, continue on. I, I think I think 50K may be high, but but it totally depends on the strategy. We've certainly spent more more than that. Hundred percent, and so there's there's two things to add on on that. Like number one is, and you know me, Med, like cheap ass of the world. Like we actually initially tried to do all this ourselves, being totally idiotic. We didn't even hire a lawyer. We're like, all these guys do is cut and paste uh, like the document that we can get off the SEC. Let's just grab that, put in our data, and send it to them. And we did that because we're idiots. And then we got a call literally from one of the SEC lawyers. And the gal said, are, are you guys trying to submit this like without a lawyer? And we're like, yeah. Like, and she's like, well, you can do that technically, but nobody does that. And here's like the 50 reasons why. So long story short, like, just don't be an idiot and, and do what we try to do. We try to cut out the lawyer. It's just not going to work. And then the other thing to emphasize here is that the whole ethos of like our white label concept is we're trying to make it affordable and efficient for entrepreneurs to get into the ETF business because we want to promote entrepreneurship in ETFs. And so our whole goal is how do we economize and make access to this traditionally super high barrier to entry market more affordable? So all the costs I'm throwing out here are like, you can obviously cut them off. I'm just giving you the ballpark with a little bit of padding, just so people have some expectation management that, oh, well, Wes said it was, you could do it for 30K. And, it, and if, you know, so, so I'm, I'm being, I'm, what do they call, I'm sandbagging a little bit here throughout. And so just as people listen to this, you know, yeah, you can always get a little bit more razor's edge. But the funny thing to me is I often tell people too, is that the, upfront initial cost is is not the main cost. The main cost is you launch a fund and it sits there at a donut assets of zero. This is the big, you know, what you're on the hook for if you- Exactly. And another thing I should bring up here because it's a good time, just because it's a misconception that we always get is, is a lot of people reach out. They're like, oh, I heard the SEC passed this new rule where it's like free to launch an ETF now. And what they're not understanding is that it's you no longer have to pay for the exemptive relief, which maybe you mentioned initially that, you know, costs you guys a couple hundred grand. It costs us probably like 20 or 30. That part's free as long as you're doing something that's in the ballpark of, of normal. But you still have to pay for all the registration statement, the ongoing, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the stuff we're going to outline here. So the SEC rule did not make it free to launch an ETF. They made it quote unquote, free to not have to deal with the cost of exemptive relief. There's also a big efficiency benefit of partnering with someone like you guys, which is every time you send an email or call your lawyers, you got to remember that's minimum 500 bucks, 1000 bucks an hour. 
And those bills, like if you just don't know what you're doing and you've never done this before, those bills rack up really, really fast because you're going to spend a lot of time getting up to speed. But working with someone who's done it a million times, you've obviously minimized those sort of costs too. Yeah, 100%. And just to reiterate on that point is that's why I said 50K because that assumes you like to talk a lot. But our CCO, Pat, he's like super efficient, you know, like former Catherine Marine Corps, like he's pretty much a lawyer at this point. So if you just trust us and allow us to like do it efficiently, we, we don't, you don't have to pay the lawyer like a gazillion dollars an hour. You know, obviously the cost can be coming down. It, you know, maybe I could get it for 30 if it was like bleeding edge. But the main point is this is a cost. It's just a cost of doing business. And it's this next stuff that you really need to be thinking about, not saving the 10K on the launch. Because frankly, that's not going to matter in the grand scheme of whether you're successful or not in an ETF business. So that's initial. Just to get the, the thing rocking, the initial slug of legal compliance and kind of work with us to figure out how you want to structure it. And there's just to quickly touch on that, there's, there's really two ways that we can work with someone. You're either an index provider where you just basically send us a spreadsheet and we pretty much do everything else. And your job is to, you know, promote and talk about and educate people on your index. And then the other version of that is if you don't want to have an index based fund and you want to be active, what people can do is they partner with us as a non-discretionary sub-advisor so we can legally, you know, be able to pay you through, through a contract relationship. But in the end, you're not really doing anything, right? You're a sub-advisor and you're non-discretionary. So really your job is, again, to just send us the spreadsheet to tell us what to buy and sell. But those are like the two different options of how you can be structured in our setup. So you get all this stuff going. And um, while this is happening, again, this, this is really what gets the ball rolling. And this is like a three to four month process. But now you can start working on a bunch of other things as far as like your marketing plan, getting your initial materials together, your website together, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say we get, we get through this and now we're at launch phase. So we are now about to actually, you know, spin this thing up and, and have essentially an IPO in the marketplace. The key things you got to do here is there's a coordination effort where you have a fund, you've paid the bills uh, to the SEC and to the lawyers, but now we need to get an initial seed commitment from one of the authorized participants or broker dealers out there because they're the ones that have to basically fund up this ETF initially. And that's usually like two and a half million dollars that they post. And so you need to, we on your behalf need to convince someone that, that is going to post up two and a half million dollars that these people are credible and that they're going to be able to raise at least two and a half million dollars, preferably like five million dollars day one to get them out of the seat. Because brokers don't want to be in the business of owning your ETF. They want to be in the business of market making and, and doing trades and executions. In the mo general mood on that, maybe it's just my own personal experience. It used to be a lot easier than it is today. I remember we had like a $15 million seed in our first fund, and now it's like scratching and clawing to get, to get anyone to do it. It's very difficult. And that's why more and more, it, it's actually very important that you work with a like a counterparty, either a white labeler, or you're coming in the business with tons of credibility. Because even us, we have to do a tons of like uh, reputation management. We've never launched a fund 
that didn't get out of seed day one, essentially, right? So we have, we're batting 100 for 100, or sorry, 100%. We haven't launched 100 funds. Uh, whereas like iShares, because they got, you know, bajillions of dollars, market makers are willing to like let them roll, even if it crashes and burns, just because they have so much more flow. But it, it, it's important for boutiques like us that when we go to market and we put an ask on a market maker and we say, hey, man, like handshake, we're, we're going to get you out of seed. You know, we, that needs to be like a money good handshake. To be clear, there's a, there's lots and lots of funds that never, I mean, not never, but but go a very long time without getting out of seed. Yeah, there's good reason why market makers don't like this. It's because they've been burnt so many times. So this, to your point, is becoming a much more challenging component of launching ETF is, is we need to be able to convince the marketplace and our counterparties that, that these people are legit. And that obviously helps by working with someone else who's already built you know, brand and trust reputation. So you or I can easily launch an ETF where you know, Joe Smuckatelli uh, <laughs> random RIA guy says, Hey, or girl, what's launched ETF? They, they may not be engaged as much, but, but that's a big component of the initial aspect is just, is working in the capital market side and getting someone to commit to the seed capital and to be like your lead market maker. Usually that involves a dog and pony show where we're, you know, you pitch us, we're okay. We're in, this seems viable. And then we have to turn around and pitch you and, and hopefully close the deal there. That is like a super time-consuming element. And then the other time-consuming element here before launch is you've got to get the website rocking. You got to get your fact sheets rocking, like all your marketing material. And, and the reason that can be a bit of a pain is, is it's not like uh, if you're an RIA where you just you kind of manage your own marketing material. It, anytime you're in the security business and an ETF is, a, is technically a security, all the marketing materials need to be approved by FINRA. And that, that's just a lot more convoluted process that could take, you know, potentially weeks. We want to be working through this, you know, as the SEC's reviewing your materials. We, we got to start prepping the fact sheets and prepping the websites and all these sort of things. So there's a lot of uh, backfill and little minutia jobs that, that we need to get done before this ticker actually goes live day one. Do so you got anything to add on just the general kind of launch phase, like right before you're about the click the go button, Matt? No, I mean, I think thoughtfully thinking through a number of things, namely like you either have the seed, you have a very clear plan, you got a, a fun ticker, perhaps uh, memorable that can help. I think you've been pretty accurate so far on uh, all that you're mentioning. What's next, launch day? Yeah, so, and, and I'll add a little bit of color on seed capital, like the initial money of who's going to be the first five mil in this fund, just some random ideas out there that I've seen that have been pretty successful. Just for if people are listening or thinking about this, the, the best idea I've seen to date is where uh, an ETF sponsor or future sponsor goes to an operating capital base. Like they go raise a little angel, a little VC, and they say, listen, if you put 100K in my operating company, you have to commit you know, 400K in AUM capital to the fund with the idea being is now you're solving two things at once. You're solving the operating capital problem and the initial capital problem in AUM. And the argument is like, well, if you're a VC and you're willing to give me money for the operating capital, you should probably believe in the product. So put skin in the game. 
And, and that's been a very successful way. I've seen a lot of folks uh, who are out in the markets for this, like raising the operating capital and the AUM seed initially. That's a good technique for sure. And the AUM seed or the path is, is so important, listeners, for a couple of reasons. It's not just the profitability of the fund. So we say, yeah, you know, you need to get to 20, 30 million just so you're profitable and you're not writing big checks, which we'll get to in a minute. But it's also perception from investors. I think when investors see a fund that's at $5 million that trades 200 shares a day, for better or for worse, they think that it, and it probably has a big bid-ask spread. Typically, bid-ask will condense as the fund gets larger. So for the individual investor who's buying 100 or 1,000 shares or 10, that can be frightening. And then also there's a little bit of that you know, social element where people like to get to the warm and fuzzies from other investors blessing something. So if they look at something that's sitting there and it's been out for one, three, six, 12 months, two years, and it's at 5 million, they're saying, well, am I just the crazy one buying this and no one else is buying it? What am I missing? And on top of that, there's a lot of these platforms and uh, the traditional wirehouses are being the big one, but also, you know, all the various brokerages, they all have their different rules. Some it's AUM, some it's volume, some it's all sorts of other stuff, but you'll also be blocked on a lot of those. AUM cures a lot of those headaches. And so getting to the what we consider the starting gate to me is not launch. The starting gate is really when you get to the gravitational orbit of 20 to 30 million, then you're in the game. And then there's obviously different orbits of 50, 100 million, et cetera, that get, unlocks different doors. And one last point on that, because I'm sure you could confirm this, Matt, but if I had the AUM that was firmly committed to me via verbal communications, we would probably be BlackRock right now. And it's just everyone's like, oh, I'm good for 10 mil when you launch this thing. The issue is they might say that because they're your friend, your relationship. But if they're, let's say they're working at a, like an RIA or something, right? Like they may be truthful in that statement. It's not that they're being nefarious. It's just that when they actually, when it comes time to, okay, we're going to put 10 mil in the fund and they go talk to the investment committee who talks to the compliance officer and then the officer's like, well, yeah, but we have a minimum five-year track record and 100 mil AUM. So how are we going to put 10 mil in the CTF? What are you talking about? So it's just whenever you're like, we never rely on commits. And you should never either if you're, if you're out there getting excited about how much AUM you're going to have. You need to have like Lannister money, right? Like Game of Thrones. Like it's got to be money good. And these people pay their debts. It can't be verbal commitments. It's really important that you discount promises. And unless you control that capital, it's your uncle or there, there's some legal or, or structural reason why you know you can move that money into this fund. I would just discount it to basically zero. And then on top of that, with all the platforms, a lot of people get ready to facepalm based on all the challenges with the various gatekeepers, you know, we've had people in the past that say your fund's not approved because you don't have enough employees or your funds are not approved. The big one we see all the time is they're active as if that's some like meaningful gate, whereas the entire mutual fund industry is active 
but somehow that's that matters for ETFs. And, and it's just, look, I mean, the, the world is learning. They're figuring out what ETFs are. This is a lot of legacy risk management problems. And remember, too, a lot of the platforms have conflicts of interest of wanting their own products to have an advantage. And or we forgot to talk about this. But one of the biggest issues of the mutual fund world that the ETF rule, I think, just just destroyed was all these huge mutual fund supermarkets and platforms where the mutual funds pay an enormous fee to be on the platforms. I mean, in some cases, it's like 40 basis points. That's like almost half a percentage point, which for many ETFs is almost like the entire cost. And so there's a lot of legacy conflicts of interest. A lot of investors don't know that, by the way. And so it's going to be fun to watch the mutual fund industry eat itself and implode because all the brokerages now also have zero transaction fee ETFs. So there's zero cost to trade these. Many of the mutual funds still charge. And on top of that, you're getting kicked in the nuts by the mutual funds having to compete with these massive cost structures on the supermarkets, which generates like a billion dollars a year for Schwab, by the way. You avoid all this with ETFs. It's such a better structure and totally ignoring the, the we calculate the tax benefit on the average equity ETF versus a mutual fund that's active at 70 basis points, which is more important than the entire management fee alone. Anyway, end of Meb rant. Let's go back to it. Yeah, no, uh, obviously 100% on all that. Like this is not meant to be a sugarcoating on, on launching ETF and how easy it is. Again, this is just like reality. And we, we're trying to help people do this as efficiently as possible and set them up for success because it really is important that they consider this option for all the reasons you just mentioned. Like this is the future. And yeah, it sucks, but like this is a, at least for foreseeable future, seems like a viable way to deliver an investment management product. So now we're at the like, okay, this thing is launched. Wait, you forgot. Hold on. You probably went to the NYSC or NASDAQ. Oh, yeah. What yep, you used sure. to do in the olden days, pop some bottles, ring the bell uh, now or push a button on the NASDAQ. Now it's probably virtual. Uh, but one of my most memorable points of my career was doing a NYSC bell ringing. Super fun. They have the biggest boardroom table I've ever seen in my life. It's like a a football field. You must can sit 200 people around this boardroom table. Yeah. All right. But that sucker's launched. Now you're in the game. It's the real world. You got to start raising assets. Exactly. And and I skipped exchange listing on your point because nowadays it's like, okay, no one cares. Um, but yeah, in the old days, it was way, way, way cooler. So you launch this thing and now is when the bills start piling up because you have all these counterparties, right? Your custodian, broker, dealer, fund admin, audit, tax, you know, us like managing your compliance. There's all these pieces that just deal with managing the regulatory edifice of the ETF, not to mention the portfolio management component, like dealing with the crates, the redeems, the, you know, custom baskets, uh, baskets and rebalance and what have you. And this is where the real cost comes in. And again, this is highly variable, but just for simple math, if you throw it in your Excel pro forma, because you don't want to think too hard, what we usually tell people is, listen, you're looking, and, we, and this is where we would underwrite anything that's actually variable cost, but we'll just deal with it and eat it if, if we're wrong. It, you're looking at a 225K fixed cost, and then usually around a 25K variable cost. 
which, you know, could range from 5K to 50. And that's really about like how much marketing materials do you want to submit? Because every time you submit, you got to pay. And then also your AUM, the SEC charges an AUM fee. And, and we just pass that through. So you're looking at 250K, easy math, soup to nuts to like operate an ETF in a given year. Can you get cheaper than that? Of course you can. Uh, can you get more expensive than that? Sure. But that's just a ballpark on, on a platform like ours, just running the thing, soup to nuts. You know, take that to the bank, put in your pro forma amount, quarter million. I don't think you can get much cheaper, by the way. I mean, having done this 11 times and getting ready to launch some more. But again, to really let this sink in for listeners, you know, whether it's 200 or 250 or 300 or 150, to me, shouldn't be the big calculus. The, the big calculus is focusing, in my opinion, on the on the top line. How do you get AUM in the door? All right, keep going. So there's the there's the variable fee. There's the fixed fee. You got it. The easy way to think again is like, okay, to start the thing, the legal stuff in phase one, let's say it's 50K. To your point, can it be 30K? Sure. But just to be conservative, let's say it's 50K. Then you have the ongoing cost, the fixed cost, you're looking at probably 225K. And then you have this variable cost that we estimate around 25K. So let's just say it's 250K in total. And then if you have the good problem, of AUM, and as we always tell people, AUM solves all problems. Eventually, as you get scale, because the operator like us, we get passed through variable costs, you know, three or four bips here or there, there's an additional scale cost. So you're kind of looking at your fixed costs or fixed plus initial variable of like 250K. And then obviously, if you get to 100 or, or 200 or 300 mil, you know, we start charging a marginal cost of, you know, anywhere from, you know, let's say four to 10 basis points. But what does that mean? That means that once you hit the fixed cost, you're kind of through the operating leverage pain. And now let's say you charge 50 basis points. And, and let's say we kick through a variable cost of five bips on, on anything that's at scale. Well, now you're, you know, do the math. Like you have a pretty nice gross margin there. And that's why people like the ETF business. But to your point, Mev, you do have to fight through how the heck do I get to that 5 mil, that 25 mil, that 50 mil. If you can get to that 50 mil mark and you're, you're at least in the ballpark of, of potentially being break even or even maybe profitable, you know, now you set yourself up for an epic call option where, where you can leverage this operating leverage in the ETF structure. And, and if you do a good job on distribution and marketing and telling your story, you know, it's a very attractive business model, essentially. Yeah. And, and we've seen many cases of this when a product finds this sort of product market fit. I mean, the, the classic from the olden days was um, Wisdom Trees DXJ, which for years had sat, you know, bouncing around 100, 200 million. And then when Japan stock market was taking off, it was yen hedge. That sucker got to like 15 billion or something. And the beauty of the asset management model that the mutual fund industry and everyone else understands is that of the 150-odd industries, asset management still has one of the highest profit margins out there. And so, you know, in my mind, again, we keep harping on this, but I think it's so important. If you're going to marinate a fund and have no plan on how to raise assets, you better have 500000 to a million bucks to subsidize that sucker for three or four years. 
To me, that's a really foolish way of doing it, but people do it. But then the big next ones are 20 million. Like at least you're in the game. You can breathe easy where you're not writing huge checks. 50 is things, okay, like this is happening. You're probably positive cash flowing. And then above that, it just becomes an equation of how much exponential does the revenue go? And obviously you need to have everything kind of all the puzzle pieces working together to get to that. But once you hit 100, 200, 400, 500, you know, the profit margins just are, it's it's often for most people no harder to run a fund at 20 million than 200, 2 billion, 20 billion. And, and I forgot to, we didn't comment on this, but I think it's really important. The ease of running a fund, let's say you run a equity strategy that rebalances once a year. Let's call it this innovative new strategy called Dogs of the Dow, right? You buy 10 Dow stocks each year with the highest dividend yield, and you only rebalance once a year. If you're the actual manager trading whatever, money sloshing in and out every day at a mutual fund, you got to go buy and sell stuff, which is why it's so tax inefficient. With an ETF, theoretically, you could check in once a year to make the rebalance, and then you do nothing. It all happens behind the scenes. And so as a manager, and, and I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but but as the person who's designed that strategy, it's so much harder to do as separate accounts as a mutual fund as an ETF. You know, there's obviously dividends and corporate actions and stuff, but but by and large, you're not doing a whole lot on the inflows and outflows that kind of happen in kind behind the scenes. Yeah, no, you got it. And and this whole model we're mentioning here is where literally your job as like a sponsor or someone who wants to get in this business is you manage the Excel spreadsheet. Like you tell us what to buy, what to sell, and just send it on over and then just educate the marketplace about your idea. You don't do anything else. So you could get rid of every single person in your firm besides obviously your, your sales and marketing people probably and your R&D folks. You know, it's, it's that this is like a, like you don't do anything operationally or in the guts or kind of like the dirty work. You're just being the rock star profile, which is what a lot of people are good at and what they want to do. Give me a give me a case study example. You know, we've done a couple of white label funds, but ninety nine percent of the time, when someone e- emails me about starting an ETF, I say email Wes at Alpha Architect. Um, yeah. Sorry, by the way, you're going to get a bunch of inquiries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't abuse that, listeners. Only email Wes and crew if you're serious, or if you got good jokes too. I like I like dumb jokes, so you can send those over. You have been successful at rolling out a handful of funds. Maybe give us a case study of you know kind of someone who's done it. And, and kind of the, the bells and whistles of how it's worked? Yeah, actually, the ones that we've done to date are all been very different, and they've all had success in their own way, right? So the first one we did, and this, this is a shout out to Perth Toll, if anyone knows her out there. She's the one that actually convinced us to get into this white label business, because we'd always been very particular about just keeping things private. You know, let's just use this infrastructure for our own purposes. And she kind of convinced us like, Hey, this is a good idea. You guys should be in this. Like, why not use all this stuff you've built? And so in her situation, she's total bootstrap. And I think she's got 20 mil in her fund, but it's just essentially her alone and unafraid. She raised a little bit of initial capital, had initial big seater around like the five mil mark. And it's just been her. And that's pretty much it. Like just working it. And she's been for all intents and purposes, that success if you get to that 20 mil mark within a year, especially given that 
she hasn't burned a lot of money on hiring Salesforce or anything. And, and she will slowly grow that. It's a long game play. And I could see that fund, you know, being a hundred mil in three years from now and, and so on and so forth. So it worked, right? The other group we dealt with, they actually had, they do machine learning AI things. They had a legacy software business, newsletter business, where they had already had a pretty large following. And even their own software clients are like, you know, Scott is the gentleman's name. Like, Scott, dude, honestly, can you just put this in an ETF so we could just buy the thing and get the tax efficiency? Like, it's getting annoying having to like enter in the trades all the time. Like, can you just hook us up? And so he he's like, well, yeah, like, why not? And then, so in their situation, they they also have a very, very small operational footprint, but they already had this intellectual demand from a lot of people that they like their ideas but they didn't have a way to efficiently deliver it to them. And those guys have already raised like $70 million in one year with, again, very minimal footprint on sales operation. Like it's pretty much Scott and like, you know, some of his friends from the old software business and it's amazing, right? So that's another approach. They're kind of leaning on like an, an effective distribution strategy that wasn't traditional, but they were able to translate those followers into ETF uh, buyers. And in the third case study that just cause it's relevant for given like the spectrum is we're working with a group now Almanac, which is essentially all for all intents and purposes is a cheap SEI TAMP. So they're, they're trying to, you know, help RIAs who just hate dealing with ops and infrastructure just want to focus on, you know, working with clients and, and like maintaining good relations. They're like actually a billion and a half dollars right now. And they also have a lot of clients that are super tax sensitive. So they decided initially to launch an ETF and then they realized very quickly, hey, we're good at doing RIA ops compliance. This ETF thing is a total nightmare. Let's just have Alpha Architect do it. And so in their situation, we're now going to be operating all the ETF mechanics and materials and what they use their ETF as is for people that want an allocation to essentially a risk parity idea tax efficiently that's part of their models in their one and a half billion dollar RA complex so, so they were kind of a bring your own assets example so these are three different totally completely different approaches to you know figuring out how to launch an ETF successfully and within a year have it where it's viable and, and this could work and everyone has their own different story. And, and we're in the middle of a ton of discussions where also same thing, every single one of these, there's a different background of how they've convinced us why this is something that, that we'd be willing to sit behind and partner with them on. And so it's, it's happening out there and there's no one way to do it. There's many ways to, to cross the finish line, we think. This is a trend and listeners, you can check out all the funds that Wes is talking about and the white labels at their website. But, you know, this is the trend that I would have bet on a long time ago to have really accelerated that hasn't but is now, which is RIAs that are launching their own funds, registered investment advisors, or you could put brokers or, or any money managers under that same umbrella You've had a few over the years that have been successful, but it hasn't been a sort of dam breaking stampede. But for many of the issues uh, or reasons we mentioned earlier of why this is thoughtful, you know, we did it where we cannibalized separate accounts business, where we closed two hedge funds 
just did them as ETFs, again, for the transparency, the tax benefits, and then the organizational challenges. But there's a few other use cases that, you know, I think are are really interesting. Uh, one, and Wes, if anyone could figure this out, it's you, is you mentioned this sort of 1031 concept. I'm surprised that some really large individuals, family offices, you know, broker at Morgan Stanley, you have what's called on the private side, these not switch funds. What are they called? Where you can put in a highly oh, exchange funds, exchange yeah. funds. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You contribute some property and then you get the pool. Yeah. Right. I'm surprised that an innovative ETF issuer hasn't figured out a way to do this where let's say you got a hundred million bucks of highly appreciated stocks mm-hmm. or a billion, you put it into the ETF structure, you're the initial seed you then get ETF shares back, which can then essentially wash the capital gains through the structure. That seems to me like a doable idea. So I'm going to put the onus on you to figure it out. I don't know how to do it. It's funny you mention that, like, because we're actively in the middle of trying to figure that out. And there, there is some rumors out there that some people have solved this. And so obviously we're trying to figure out what they did. You obviously got to be very, very careful because you got to make sure you comply with like obviously tax rules and, and all this good stuff, which we obviously recommend. And the other thing that I know you definitely can't do, or you got to be very, very careful of, because I get this question all the time. And, and trust me, I've, I've thought a million times sideways is one rich person or individual who let's say there's some billionaire, because I would think of this if I was a billionaire, like, wow, I could just run my family office in an ETF and have a tax deferral forever. I'm just going to do that. Well, the problem is you can't do that because you need to have distributed ownership in an ETF. So, and and we usually recommend for a long story, but no one investor should ever be more than 20% of an ETF where that's identifiable, i.e. you're an affiliate of me because now you're a control person, you know, people can sue you. So unless you can find a bunch of rich other family offices we form a syndicate, we're all going to do this idea and post up 20% a piece. You could actually do something you're talking about here, but it's just, in my experience, like herding uber rich people is, you know, like herding cats. So, you know, good luck if you can do it and more than happy to help you if you can figure that out. But what you're talking about of, of like an, an SMA or even a hedge fund or mutual fund of being able to move into an ETF structure and potentially pull, like keep your basis, but move those securities in there. And now you have an ETF versus like an LP interest. That is something that is potentially doable. We haven't done it yet, but actually we're in the middle of uh, exploring that for someone in real time. And it sounds like it is possible. So no promises because this is going to be a live podcast, but it's certainly something that uh, if that sounds like you, you know, feel free to reach out and we're happy to potentially explore that option with you. Well, in the use case in my mind for the family office, and I'm surprised you haven't seen more of this, is many, many, many family offices internally manage active strategies. And there is nothing that rich people hate more than taxes. And why in the world would you do an active strategy and not just wrap it in the ETF structure? And you get the added benefit that if it's a strategy that's worth a shit, other people will invest. So theoretically, if you're a family office and you're doing, I don't know, some strategy based on, hey, we only invest in 
stocks where there's a high family interest or the insiders are buying, whatever it is, and you generate a few percentage points alpha per year, but you're probably paying 70 bips, if not more, because these guys are getting taxed at the, the highest rates. Why would you not launch an ETF? You then have the ability to not pay taxes on it or defer taxes, but also you get the added benefit of potential appreciation from other people agreeing that you have an amazing strategy. So if even if you have 50 million, it could be 500 million, 5 billion, and all of a sudden you have a revenue stream. Yeah, no, it's you're just letting other people help you lower your fixed cost and you're doing what you wanted to do anyways. Um, eventually you end up getting paid to manage the money in a tax efficient way that you wanted in the first place. So I agree with you. I'm also surprised, uh, but, I, but my experience is it's been the coordination issues where somehow it's got to be a, you know, a syndicate of family offices that agree in the kind of equal wealth so they can contribute to the seed effectively. But yeah, it certainly seems like a good idea and someone should probably do that at some point for sure. Yeah. There's a couple other areas that I, this is like a, a shark tank for ETFs that I haven't seen really develop that I tweeted one last night, but no one, no one was awake, I think. I said, you know, there's a few people that have tried something similar, but you have a lot of opportunity in my mind, if you're a charity to say, look, people love giving us money, but we could invest, you know, in ESG style companies that fulfill our mission or what we're trying to do, or we believe in, and the management fee can go to the charity. Likewise, you could do it for endowments. There's a bunch of these student-run endowments. UVA has one, Virginia, my alma mater. We had a great episode with Tulane, uh, who actually did this with a mutual fund. But again, you could do it and have the tax benefits of the ETF called Birkenrode and uh, uh, Peter Ricciuti. And then, the, again, same thing. The management fee goes to the, the endowment at the school. That seems like such a no-brainer. And I'm curious. Oh, and the last under that same banner was all of these. There's all these idea conferences. So Ira Sohn. There's one called Invest for Kids coming up where they have people, famous hedge funds come and pitch a stock. And I said, why don't you launch an ETF based on that? You invest in the stocks that they get pitched. And theoretically, if they you know, do a good job, you can charge a management fee again that will benefit this orders of magnitude more than the donations you'll get for the virtual conference. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I like the idea, especially in, in a world where, you know, people are very keen on like impact investing and being socially responsible with their money. It seems like that could definitely be a win-win, right? Where, where you're going to manage your money you wanted to manage anyways through a nice, efficient, regulated vehicle. And then any of the proceeds that come in there, since you get don don donated to some cause that everyone thinks is a reasonable idea. I mean, why not? I mean, obviously like as a, cold-hearted, rational Chicago economists, the counter-argument is like, well, just run the, the ETF vehicle efficiently at low cost, and then you know people could save the money on, on the fee and just donate it to whatever cause they want. Presumption in my mind is that you would have to either, you would have to nail some value add. And someone tweeted to me last night and said, there's actually a fund that does this in Australia that's already donated 10 million in benefits. And I, it reminds me of the hedge fund in UK, I think the children's fund. Anyway, it's an opportunity. You guys, if we got Red Cross listening, hit up Wes. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're, I mean, kind of the idea of our platform 
is, I mean, honestly, we've already eaten the fixed cost, right? Like we built all the software, built all these systems. And so the way we look at, at the white label business, because we're obviously in the main ETF business, is, is we look like that's our gold mining business, right? We're already out gold mining. This is more like the shovel selling business. So we're not trying to get like super rich here, but to the extent that someone can convey that they're a low risk candidate and they're not going to put reputation or fixed cost risk on us, you know, we're open to a lot of different deals where our whole thing is we like ETFs and we think to your point, there's so many more use cases for them. But the issue is like the launch cost, the setup cost, and the brain damage of doing it is non-trivial. So, uh, I mean, like the costs we've talked about here, obviously just kind of rack rates and, you know, what the standard issue things are, but, you know, we're open to any good ideas and the in-state is how do we economize on our own platform and efficiencies to make sure that other entrepreneurs can, can come in and be successful. Like we're trying to open the umbrella where there's just so many great ideas, but launching ETF is such a pain in the ass. It still is. Well, the good news is most of the people that I mentioned have big pockets. So endowments, family offices, charities. And so I know CalPERS listens, but all the other endowments, I've written some articles, should most of these be managed by a robot? I don't understand why if you're an endowment, you know, the amount of drama and brain damage and fees yeah. and a headache. It, I mean, CalPERS, it's just like never ending story. Why wouldn't they say, dude, we're just going to launch an ETF. We're going to buy the global market portfolio with tilts and we're going to have West do it. And we're going to save $200 million a year in costs. And it's probably going to beat what we're doing currently. And everyone will be happy. Yeah. And I think there are people that do that at scale with, with obviously like iShares and some of the monsters, but there's definitely no one that where, where someone said, Hey, I've got 25 or 50 mil seed. You know, would you work with me? Like, you know, I'm not so sure like an iShares would be like, oh yeah, let's do it. I don't even think they wake up for $50 million anymore. I, I know Vanguard doesn't like uh, you know, a billion dollar business for them. is like, whatever, that's a rounding error. So yeah, I mean, we're open for that business. And then, you know, it'd also be unfair to say like, we're not the only one in white label business. There, there's others out there, you know, like uh, Mike Venuta at uh, Title Services, they have really good offering. So you should check out. You can always go direct. They have a good example, by the way, uh, you know, a use case where they helped to uh, um, launch RPAR, which is nearing a billion in assets, but is a good example of an RIA. It's like a $10 billion RIA located here in LA. Good guys, Eris. And uh, they seeded it, you know, to where it's large enough that you know, it's automatically viable from day one. And it's a good example. I don't want to speak for them, but it seems like, you know, they did what we were talking about earlier with wrapping up a lot of the uh, separate accounts into an ETF strategy that's more tax efficient. I am shocked that you have not seen more eyes do this. I've said that a million times, but also, I mean, we know why the mutual funds haven't because they're going to hold on to those cash flows as long yeah. as people <laughs> are willing to pay them these huge fees. But I mean... I am consistently shocked how every giant mutual fund asset manager on the planet hasn't either launched ETFs or gotten into the game, but I'm a broken record there. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, and but you you nailed it. I mean, the, the general case study that we've seen is, because we a lot of times talk, probably like you do, to the people that aren't at the C-level, they're right next down, right? And the issue 
is that most asset management shops, like you're going to get bonused and compensated on like, well, what's the revenue over the next three to five years? Well, guess what? If you want to be around in 10 years, you need to do an ETF. But guess also what? You're going to have to take a huge revenue cut in the next three to five. So the C-level executives, you know, they're like, well, why would I do that? Whereas like the younger group is like, well, you need to do that or we're not going to have a job. And so there's a lot of times just conflicts of uh, interest in, uh, you know, doing the efficient idea, I think. A, a decade long is far too long for any business career risk to work out because the older crew is just me like, dude, I'm just going to sunset my dividends. Let this as all the people die and get divorced. They forgot they own these funds. I'm just going to let that sunset. The younger yeah. crew is <laughs> like, I'm not going to be here in 10 years. So the only asset managers that are disrupting themselves that will be around in 10 years. And I, I mean, you look at that chart of ETF and, and high fee mutual fund flows. The example I still give though, is it, it hasn't even really begun in a lot of areas. The asset allocation mutual funds still have like 800 billion in assets and are like multiples more expensive than the ETF. Anyway, end of rant. These guys are gonna go, They I think the, a lot of these are terminal shorts, but you know we'll check back in in 2030. I do too, but to give a shout out to our deep value friend, Toby, he makes a point. You got to watch on terminal shorts like that because if they're free cash flow generators, you know, if they, if someone woke up and had a good idea, they could then fund, you know, with a lot of capital backing, like, you know, a moonshot that works out. And now your, your terminal short turns into a, you know, a Tesla. No, you got to do a basket. It's a terminal of yeah, I got you. Yeah. calcified asset management, long, the innovative ETF. Yeah. Issues. Yeah. And then, and you put a screen for like, if, if there's ever like a millennial or younger person in charge, like get rid of that one. Cause they, they might, might actually make a good decision. Well, you know, you've seen, um, a couple shout outs. One is there's been a lot of successes across FinTwit launching ETFs. You mentioned Toby with Zig, Perth with the Freedom Strategy, uh, the Romo guys, the Canadian Corey partnership. ARC may be the most successful of this cycle with Kathy Wood just, just blowing the, knocking the cover off the ball. Uh, I don't know how many billions in AUM they have now, but it's a lot. And remember the early days of her you know, going down this active route and then shifting the narrative a little bit, which really, I mean, obviously their performance has been otherworldly, the narrative to more disruption and innovation. Um, let me give you one more idea. We could do this. is going to be a five hour podcast, but I'm surprised you haven't seen, you're seeing it elsewhere in the economy where, and I'm not going to use the influencer word, but just brands and people and companies leverage that influence into the asset management industry. So the example would be, there was someone trying to do it, Donna Nari, uh, Nari at Iconic Beta. And you know she, she was promoting some ideas potentially about Quincy Jones and, and pairing a brand with a concept. So his was like streaming. Obviously you could do, I mean, you could think of it from 10,000 foot view with Jay-Z or Snoop or Mark Cuban or whatever it may be. That seems to me like that uh, potentially has legs at some point. What's your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, again, one of the key benefits of an ETF is you're a live stock ticker accessible pretty much everywhere where you know you have an open architecture broker platform. So you have access to this incredibly scalable marketplace. 
And to the extent you can get the idea out there, the brand out there or what have you, I mean, yeah, I'm with you. It's, I just don't think a lot of people are familiar with this aspect of how they can monetize their IP or their, their, you know, noteworthiness. One really cool example won't mention like specifics, but it, I was like, wow, that's really compelling is we got called um, by a bunch of these like PhD weather scientists and, and they didn't know anything about asset management, but they're like, man, like, like we heard about this whole like finance business and there's like apparently making people make money on like picking stocks that are like, you know, not as, or not as weather resistant or like have bad carbon footprints. They're like, we've been saying this for 20 years and we all have dissertations in this. And like the way they do it makes no sense whatsoever. We have this proprietary database and this is how it directly ties to like equity values. And I was like, yeah, like you guys should definitely probably think about asset management because you are, you know, light years ahead of like actually doing real research in ESG. Like you should monetize that. And asset management is way better than doing some consulting gig you do for, you know, 20 bucks an hour right now. But they just had no idea that that was even like an a concept. And so I'm sure there's tons of people out there that aren't in our business that have really good ideas or really cool innovations, but in the ETF wrapper and the accessibility and the scale component, you know, there's people that could all of a sudden, you know, build a hundred million dollar business and they didn't even know it existed basically. I posted on Twitter opening up to questions and we got one from my favorite anonymous account, Jake at Economic. And he says, Wes, what is the most important aspect of a new ETF launch success? There's four choices. Ticker symbol, elevator pitch, academic support, and market environment. Again, it's ticker, um, elevator pitch, academic support, market environment. Uh, I would say if I had to pick one of those, it would be market environment because it would be totally disingenuous to not say that luck in anything, but especially in asset management is probably 90% of it. So, you know, if I, if I launched the, you know, the most whiz bang, amazing trend following fund that the world has ever seen, well, guess what? I ain't raising shit it, right now. Right. But let's say we're right after 2008 and trend following in some form or other kicked butt, well, I could probably raise a billion dollars. Right. So I think market environment, which is really just luck, I would argue is, is certainly a, one of the biggest, you know, if you PCA the the variability, uh, <laughs> it's probably a big uh, driver of success, I would say. You know, that's tough because a lot of it has to do with randomness. You know, when we talk to people launching funds, you know, I say, assuming you don't have a billion dollar seed, you need to think long and hard about going back to the earlier in the conversation when I said there's the four things we think about. The first one is, does this product exist? I cannot tell you every day I wake up, to seeing one of these old school mutual fund, you know, companies or other companies that launched the I don't know five hundredth large cap growth fund ETF. Like, how are you possibly still? And, and by the way, it's not like extreme concentration. You know, you and I exist on the like outer rim of the universe. They're like, hey, we'll overweight each company by one or two percent. Like, it just doesn't even. It's not even a concept that even has potential. So assuming it has all those other things, yeah, the market environment, you know, particularly if you're a fund where nothing else exists. For example, there's only one African ETF 
And if Africa goes gangbusters, guess who's going to get the inflows? Particularly applies to thematics. If you're the only fund focusing on, you know, submarines and submarines become the biggest industry in 2020s, then you're obviously going to get the inflows. But the market environment is the gasoline on the fire. You know, we're, we talked before the podcast, we've seen this with our tail risk strategies, finding uh, a lot of interest as the market has been hitting new highs and people feeling, I think, a lot of disconnect about that. But the other ones, I think, academic support and elevator pitch appeal to your early adopters, you know, or the people that sort of get it and are willing to invest without a track record and are going to be there for a while. Ticker, in my opinion, you know, sort of is like pushes down on the accelerator. It's gravy. If you got a bomb ticker, it's going to help, but it's not going to kill the product. I've seen plenty. I mean, do you remember, um, God, what was Bill Gross's ETF when it first launched? It was like TRXT and, you know, raised a gazillion dollars. And then eventually they got the ticker for bond, but ticker helps, but. Yeah, ticker's definitely useful. The other one for me is honestly just, we always look for like cockroach uh, entrepreneurship kind of style where because luck is such a big component and because costs are a big component, like you need to have the mentality of like, I'm looking at this as a 10 year play. Like if you're in the ETF business, like I'm just going to wing it, try to get rich real quick because luck is such a huge component. Like it's unlikely you're going to get lucky, but, but if you have a little bit of luck and you have time and grade, you know, if you can stick in for 10 years, maybe, well, eventually luck has a good chance of, of rolling in your favor. So, you know, being able to stick it out for a long time and luck, those two elements, I think will, will boost up your probability of success in the end. Yeah. And I think um, an important, you know, we talk a lot about differentiation, you know, you guys have a lot of cool, cool tools on your website and professional advisors, if you want access, hit up Wes. If he's in a good mood, he'll give he'll give you access to him. He says you only got to own about a hundred million of his funds and then you'll get yeah, access. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many awesome institutional tools that he has, but one of which looks at like concentration of factors and you can sort by, you know, which funds, if you really care about value, like who's really doing hardcore in the paint value. And as you think about launching funds, listeners, you know, true differentiation and existing in this future of asset management disruption, if you have Vanguard at one side at zero fee, you need to be, in my opinion, weird, different, concentrated to be able to charge a fee uh, because that's the whole point. You know, if you're a closet indexer, you don't deserve to charge a fee, but you got to be pretty, pretty weird. Different. You know, we're only two of the not so many that are willing to be that that different, have egg on our face for half the time. Yeah, yeah, for years. The the other one that uh, just a new one I ran across this guy named Mike Akins at uh, ETFaction.com. I just recommend everyone go check their website out. Like he they've done a really good job of, of basically opening up like due diligence tools that go well beyond kind of the standard stuff that everyone uses. And, and and they're also contemplating like different ETF ideas, but the way he's gone about it where he launches like a technology platform to help educate and inform, you know, investors and clients about how things work through the unique lens that they're, you know, trying to go after. That seems like a great way to help you 
differentiate these weird, wacky strategies like you or I's, you're not going to be able to lean on Morningstar to convey that message, right? Because it is they're just in the old school methodologies of conveying and educating. So a lot of times if you're being innovative, you're going to have to build a platform that helps communicate your innovation in a way that's not done traditionally. Because if it could be done traditionally, it probably means it's not that innovative, right? Because that's why Morningstar has a, a way to assess it. So they're a good example. And there's a lot more out there where people are just leveraging software engineering design to help, you know, educate the, you know, the world about uh, why they're unique or different. Awesome. Well, Wes, I think I've held you for a long time. Any other final thoughts, Calpers, as you're listening? Uh, let's see, it's mid-September. I'm wearing a Broncos hat. Football's opening this weekend. Hopefully Broncos, fingers crossed, uh, get a big W Monday night. I've been in a marine layer depression for the von miller news but his potential can return this year but calpers if you're listening it's september that means you could get an etf out by year end if you really press wes on it any uh any final thoughts anything that uh, uh we didn't cover today that uh you think is important no i, I just think that you know the whole point is is if, if you really believe in your idea and something unique and and you think the etf is the wave of the future us and a lot of other people in industry, like include yourself, Mev, like just I recommend people lean on us to help them, you know, move forward. Like even if we don't do business, like all good, like we just want to promote a good thing. And so just make sure that everyone's aware that they can always reach out to any of us to, you know, try to get in the game and be successful. Awesome. Well, listeners, take Wes and crew up on it. Don't waste their time. Only if you're serious. But they're a good group based out of Pennsylvania. I'm sad to miss the March for the Fallen, Wes, uh, in person. We'll be doing the L.A. version. We may have to do a course correction since half of California is on fire. I think uh, yeah. getting a little closer to the, the ocean may be, uh, may be a reasonable strategy. What I'll miss most about the one in Pennsylvania was not the camaraderie, it was not the beers afterwards, it was not the extra mile you made everyone walk after dinner, but it was the local airport and the massage chairs they had in the airport. I spent probably two hours in a massage chair. <laughs> I, I was not aware of that, uh, but most people like the pickles. Like, you know, remember how they, they keep the pickles out there? That's the number one thing I hear, but that's a new one. They, they got free massage shares out there. No, they're not free. You had to put okay. in like, I probably spent like $30 where like yeah. it was like, you know, $2 for every 10 minutes. And I just, I hopefully no one else was waiting in line. Cause I just like sat in there for like two hours. I was so sore. Yeah, that happens. Uh, <laughs> when you do 20 miles out there. Well, if you're, if you're in the SoCal group, hit me up to join us. It's uh what, 28 miles? How many? Yeah, yeah, tw 28 miles. And I, th I have your guys' course. And then obviously just on Twitter, I have people hit you up direct. But uh, yeah, it's virtual this year. So we actually covered the nation. And if you just you know, go to our website, alpharchitect.com slash MFTF, we have that database of folks like yourself, Meb, the, like the team leaders, and just just ding your team leader in your region and and follow their map and show up and you know represent for gold star families and you know show your gratitude and have opportunity to get outside and get in shape why not how many uh how many different pods are there going so so we have 30 actually and we like literally covered the country i mean it's, it's going to be a way bigger event than uh like the actual normal event by going virtual 
maybe people are just pen up in their house and, you know, want to go out and, you know, do some outdoors and for charitable cause. Uh, so cool. I guess it makes sense. Fine. Wes, where do people find out more information? I'm sure they can hit you up, Wes, at Alpha Architect. But uh, websites, any other resources, places to go? Yeah, I mean, just, you know, alphaarchitect.com is just anything on there is that's probably the best place to start or just directly email us, hit us on Twitter. We're pretty much open architecture. So there's 20 different ways you can reach out to us. Awesome. Wes, thanks so much for joining us today. As always, we'll have to do it again soon. Yes, sir. Appreciate it, Meb. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. <laughs>